Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word about him or to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he'd said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. I'm now jumping to verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognised it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned his son many days. Is God good? Don't get many bigger questions than that. Is God good? Is God there? And if God is there, does he care? Those uh, phrases don't just have a, a metre to them. They're, they're deep heart cries. God, are you there? Do you care? And if you are really powerful, like the Bible says you are, if you're as powerful as the words of songs that we've sung this morning, if you're mighty, Bible word for strong, if you're omnipotent, Bible word for all powerfulness, if you're really that powerful, then do you care? And if you're really that powerful, where are you when life is hard? It's the big questions of life. We, we can ask those in an um, academic setting. You could be given a question like that, like a friend of ours at Epsom New High School, about the problem of evil. You get big questions and you have to write exploring that. But more often than not, those sort of questions, are you there? Do you care? Where are you when life really hurts? 
when tears are not from someone else's eyes, but from mine, where are you, Lord? And isn't it interesting? We're, we're going to, in the month of February, look at the story of Joseph, because the Bible, unsurprisingly, shies away from no topic that is close to our hearts. But the Bible does not give you a neat answer with a bow on top, like a, a gift to a loved one on Valentine's. The Bible gives you a story of real people in a real historical place and a real historical time. That's what we're looking at, Genesis 37. The story begins, or the story continues, you could say. We looked at the life of Abraham. We skipped over some pages. We're going to spend a month looking at the story of Joseph. It is not written by a Lloyd Webber. It is written by God. And in Genesis 37 through to Genesis chapter 50, you get a story that answers these deep questions that laid in our hearts. Are you there? Do you care? And if you are there, then how do I handle suffering? The story of Joseph gives you a story, a true story, that reveals to you the character of God. And if you jump into that story, like you jump into the deep end of the pool at the Rainbow Centre, there are great truths to reassure you, and that will change your heart and mind and maybe even give you a fresh understanding of who God has revealed himself to be. There are three hidden things in this chapter, Genesis 37. There's a hidden depth of sin. Okay, The hidden depths of sin, there's the hidden purposes of God, that's a big topic, and there are hidden patterns of his grace. Okay, Three hidden things, sin, the purposes of God, and the patterns of his grace. Let's jump in, not to a swimming pool, but let's jump into the hidden depths of sin. Now let me tell you about a journey we made. We made a journey some years ago to uh, Old Faithful. Now, I, depending on how you say this, you could call him a geezer. I think that's a bloke, but this is called a, a geezer or a geyser, and what it is, it's a hot spring. So we were in uh, Yellowstone. We we're fortunate enough to be traveling through America, and we journeyed through Yellowstone National Park, past the bears, I kid you not. First night we were there, beware there are some bears roaming around. It's a true story. But um, we got to Yellowstone National Park and we were journeying through the park. That is huge, about the size of Wales. It's huge. And you go through and there's this evergreen after miles and hectares of evergreen. But if you go to a certain place, you can see Old Faithful. So you walk through the tall evergreens and the sequoias that are just majestic. And then there's a man-made boardwalk. So you're pacing along that, hearing the sound of the soles under your uh, or the soles of your shoes, and you turn a corner and then there's um, a fence line with hundreds of people standing around a hole in the ground that looks like an earth's belly button, basically. And then every half an hour, on the half hour, there is a huge explosion, a powerful explosion of hot water that gets chucked up 100 feet into the air. You can set your watch by it. There's something brewing underneath the surface. And then this pressure from the tectonic plates produces all this hot steam and it goes up into the air. <coughs> Long illustration to tell you what. It's the same thing with the family we meet in Genesis 37. On the surface, all is well. Jacob, he's a patriarch. He's had loads of children. It's a large, prosperous, and a large and established family. But underneath the surface, there is trouble a-brewing. And it's going to explode like a, a geyser, a geyser throwing water up into the sky. Look at verse 3. It was just a question 
of when the explosion was going to come. Now Israel, Caroline helpfully said, that's Jacob by another name. Now Jacob, who's the father of the family, Israel, verse 3, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him. Now let me try and do this in a nutshell. Who do you think you are, but in Bible speak? Now Jacob... Jacob was not loved by his father. He was in deep need of affirmation and he was determined to go looking for the love that he should have received from his father who loved his brother Esau more than him, wherever it took him. And so if you, if you look through Genesis 25 to 35, you would see the family story, the backstory to where we are in Genesis 37. So Jacob, who's uh, had his back and his uh, heart's affections thwarted because his father's turned his back on him, he's determined to find love and uh, affection and affirmation somewhere. And so he sets his heart on a lady called Rachel. Rachel is beautiful. And through Rachel, he has some kids. He's looking for love, looking for affirmation, and he thought he could find it in the arms and the heart of a woman. He married her, a couple of kids, but uh, she died, sadly, giving birth to Benjamin who was their youngest child. And this is the backstory to Genesis 37. Here we meet Jacob, Israel, and he, who had his heart's affection thwarted by his father who turned away from him, who, who found love and affection in the arms of a woman called Rachel, hasn't learnt his lesson. And so now there's this dysfunctional dynamic behind what is all well on the surface, and there's an explosion that's about to take place. Because just as Rachel became the emotional centre of Jacob's heart and life, now Joseph has become the emotional centre of Jacob's heart and life. And so his affection is poured out upon him like a waterfall. Verse 3, I love you so much, Joseph, that I will give you a richly ornamented robe. Now this, this phrase is quite hard to translate. It could mean multicoloured and all that stuff. Uh -huh. But in all probability, it would mean something very different, which is a deep-hemmed, richly ornamented cloak. Now, where would you put your money in the olden times? If you're a bride, it would be sewed into the hem of your wedding dress. If you're a man, you wouldn't have touch of contactless technology. You wouldn't have a fat wallet in your back pocket. You wouldn't have a bank that you could go and uh, knock on the door of, because it was tent flaps, and so on. But so what would you do with your money? You'd put it in a deep hemmed garment. The richer you are, the deeper the hem, and so on. So in all probability, this richly ornamented uh, cloak that Father Jacob gave to his favourite son, Joseph, was deep hemmed. In other words, to say, I'm going to give you more resources. It's richly ornamented. In other words, I will do all I can, Joseph, says Father Jacob, to show you that you are the apple of my eye, you've got the affections of my heart, and all the other brothers will fooey on them. You're the one I love the most. And as a result of that, what happens? It poisons the whole well of the family dynamic. The entire family system was damaged. Look at the data with me. Look down, verse 2. We learn that Joseph, 17 years old, he's a young guy, he's a teenager. What's the first thing that we learn about him after his age and the fact that he's doing some shepherding? Verse 2, he brought their father a bad report about the brothers. This literally means either it's fake news or it's just an outright lie. 
He's got it in his heart to come to his father, who he knows loves him more than any of the others, and he wants to add more to his favour by creating a backstory that isn't true. It's a lie, it's a misrepresentation, it's a half-truth. And here you've got a 17-year-old young man who, left unchecked, will continue to be a liar. That's who he is. But then, verses 5 to 9, notice the dreams. There are two of them. First time he tells his brothers about the dream, you're going to be bowing down to me. The second time, verse 9, the parents are bowing down to him as well. Verse 8, so the brothers, they all hated him all the more. At the very least, we learn that Joseph is a 17-year-old liar who has psychological issues that he is unaware of his words on the hearts and attitudes of other people. Then there's Jacob. Jacob himself, he just reminds uh, himself of how much he adores his son Joseph, but even that is not enough, verse 10, for him not to rebuke his beloved son. Jacob can see and says, if you keep going down this track, you're a liar, you've misrepresented the truth, I love you, your brothers hate you, and if you keep saying these dreams, well, who knows what's going to happen. Joseph is on this dangerous path of becoming spoiled, selfish, shallow, maybe even an evil person. So the dad gets involved, verse 10. Then there's the brothers, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8. You see the word repeated, hate. They hated him. They hated him. Their hate is growing. They hated him all the more. Now Hebrew, when it's written, the original language, it's very efficient with words. And so if you have repeated words, pay attention. In other words, no wasted words. So there really is a problem brewing beneath the surface like old faithful, and it's about to explode. Hate is growing stronger and stronger. Jealousy is also there in the heart. And so something's going to, I'm just going to give. So beyond this surface level understanding of Jacob and a doting father, there are strong forces at work. Now, this might get very personal for some of us here. We've not known the love of our father or our mother. But at the very least, Genesis chapter 37, before we really focus on Joseph and the brothers, isn't it interesting to see how sin and grace can both be exhibited in any family? Sin and grace. When you know your parents' flaws, because you live with them, you see a sign of your parents, whether they're still with us or not, and you know all their junk. You know if they have integrity, or if they're one person in private and a different person in public. You know if they're a different person when the door slams shut at the end of church, or if they're the same person. You know their sins and their flaws, you know their character deeply. And you think, I'll never be like them, I'm going to change. But where are their sins and their flaws now? Very often they're in our hearts and in our actions. It's very hard for the apple to roll away from the tree, so to speak. It's very hard to be an utterly different person than the one you were raised by your parents. And what we're going to see is this. Just the importance of relationships. Joseph will never ever see his flaws unless his father... And the capital F, Father, gets involved in his heart and mind. 
He's never going to see his flaws. Friends, the people around you can always see your flaws a lot better than you. Have you got good, strong relationships with people that love you enough to say, have you seen that in your life? Can I speak to you privately about something? Can I speak grace into your life? Is our love strong enough that I can challenge you? That's, and that's the only thing that's going to heal you. That's the power you need, strong relationships around you that point you to the strength of relationship that only God can give by his grace through the Holy Spirit. The power of God that's like a, a bullet ricocheting around your spirit that changes you. God is determined not to leave Joseph where he is. He's determined not to leave Jacob where he finds him. He's determined not to leave the brothers where he's found them as well. God is going to show us the hidden depths of your sin and my sin because he's in the business of change. What we see from Genesis 37, it explores the, the geyser that's going to explode in your heart, the anger that's deep because it's the hidden depths of our sin. And good friends, by God's grace, are the primary means that God uses to show us what we need to work on in his power. Here's the second point, the hidden purposes of God. Some of you want to go home now. Sorry about that. The hidden purposes of God. It's a hard-hitting chapter, isn't it? The hidden purposes of God. It's not just the hidden, uh, the hidden nature of sin, but it's also the hidden purposes of God. Underneath the surface, there is sin, but underneath the, every word in the Bible is God's grace and the hidden purposes of God. God is at work in a most powerful way in the story of Joseph. Let me show you in two ways. Firstly, the dreams the dreams. These people who lived in ancient societies were used to a pecking order. I'm not talking about chickens here. We're talking about a pecking order within a family. It was hierarchical. The first came first and the second obeyed the first and bowed to the first. It was also patriarchal. That's a Bible word and a sociological word that means parents were important in the family dynamic. In other words, you would be bowing physically before your parents even into adult life. And some cultures, Asian cultures, Eastern cultures, still function in that way in some points. But the uh, parents were honoured at all costs and at all times. And uh, the hierarchical structure of family life meant that if you were the oldest, the first child, you got all the beans and all the goodies. And so verse 5 and verse 9, these two dreams that come from God to Joseph, who was acting as a prophet, but speaking unwisely, these dreams turn the values of society on their heads, turn the values of uh, normal family life in the ancient Near East about turn. Because God is not in the business of just working according to ways that we expect. His purposes are very often hidden, but his good promises always come true. And God is saying, I will bring salvation to this family and through this family to the whole world. This messed up family with loads of junk beneath the surface that no one wants to talk about, I'm going to work so kindly, so meaningfully, so graciously, so powerfully throughout your life, through hardship, that you're going to see my greatness at work. It's culturally impossible what God will do, but nothing is impossible with God. And that's what these dreams are here to say. No one will believe me in society, but you will be bowing before me. You know the end of the story, you know when that happens. Even his father will be bowing before Joseph. You know when that happens. So the dreams point us to 
the hidden purposes of God, but so do the, the coincidences. Wh- what do I mean? Look, look at this uh, passage with me again. There's a number of happenings that just, things just happen, and the passage just flows by, and if you read it quickly, then uh, read it slowly again, and you'll notice perhaps just some amazing happenings. Look at verse 14. Jacob descends to, decides to send Joseph off to see his brothers. Get out of my hair, go and see them. Go and see the brothers and see how they're doing. They're hanging out at Shechem, verse 14. Verse 15, isn't it interesting how Joseph happens to meet someone walking down the desert road and uh, he asks him as they speak together, have you seen my brothers? I I thought they were going to be here at Shechem. Oh no, I overheard them talking. Isn't that interesting how he heard them? That actually they're in Dothan. And so then through this chance happening, this occurrence, we have exactly what Joseph needs to hear from a man that he wasn't expecting to meet. Look down at verse 19 to 21. Isn't it interesting how Reuben is there just at the right time to save Joseph's neck? If he wasn't there, he would be killed, not sold. Isn't that interesting? Now, as the month goes on, you will see that there are many, many chance happenings in the life of Joseph. And it's fascinating to me, as I said to someone this week, Look down at chapter 37 and find for me the name of God. Where is God? Where is the Lord? Where is the Holy One? Where is Yahweh? These Old Testament names for God in this chapter. God is not mentioned in this chapter by name, but his fingerprints are everywhere. He's in complete control. He's managing every chaotic, murderous thought and moment. Every chance meeting on a road to Shechem from a guy that overheard a story. Every chance encounter that, that Reuben said, just to speak a good word, we don't have to do this, don't do that. He's there at verse 36, where, isn't it interesting how Joseph, who's spared, gets sold? I wonder what he's going to do. God's in complete control through the coincidences, the happenings, the occurrences, the chance meetings that happen in Genesis 37. God's wise, redeeming love for you is compatible with terrible disappointments, says the Bible. Terrible things can happen to you, and in God's deep purposes, that does not mean that God is not in control. It does not mean that God is not good. It does not mean that he is not loving. Look at verse 23 and 24. There's a brutality about this moment when Joseph's brothers seek to get rid of him. Verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. They took him and threw him into the cistern. This word stripped is literally what you would do to an animal. It means to skin an animal. It's not the normal word for just taking off a piece of clothing. That's not all. They were not only violent as they ripped off this precious ornamented robe that we learned about in verse 3. It says they took him and they threw him. This word threw, once again, is not a a normal word for for tossing a ball on a court or something like that. It means to dump a dead body into a grave, rarely used once again. So the writer is saying there is a brutality, there is a callousness, there is a determination about the brothers as they strip him, seize him, throw him in, and then as they move away from the site of the crime, and then as they get their picnic out, they would have heard his cries, they would have heard his uh, shouts for help, 
and yet they chose to ignore him. And if this hadn't had happened, everybody would have been lost because famine is coming, we'll learn next week. Famine is coming and unless God intervenes, tens of thousands of people will lose their lives. There are physical things going on and there are spiritual things going on in this story. Only because Joseph is rejected as he's sold into slavery, only because these awful things happen will Joseph himself be saved. And because Joseph is saved, that leads to the salvation of tens of thousands of people. And indeed, God's salvation line, his rescue mission for the whole uh, world of those who trust in him, will that continue? Joseph is saved from his pride, he's saved from himself, he's saved from his lies because of what God does through a terrible set of circumstances. His brothers will be saved from their hatred and their jealousy, but only if God's purposes work out. Even Jacob, his blindness of favouritism will be rescued and redeemed and restored through God's purposes and these awful things. It's my conviction, and I'm sure I've stolen it from another book as well, and it's true in my life, no one learns about their faults through being told. You've got to be shown. And God in his grace shows us our faults so that he might transform us and change us to be more like his son. You have to be shown. And often it's through very painful situations. Centuries later, Elisha was in the city of Dothan. And a terrible situation was going on. 2 Kings chapter 6, you can read it up for homework. Caroline set some homework, so have I. The army were about to come in and wipe out the inhabitants of Dothan. Elijah was there, and sorry, Elisha was there, and he was there with his servant, and he was about to die. He prays to God for help, and God comes in in a miraculous, immediate manifestation of his glory and power through an angelic, unseen host, and the city is saved. Chariots of fire not swinging low, but chariots of fire coming to rescue the servant of God in a miraculous, unique moment. And you're saying, hang on, same God, same Bible, two different people in great need, God saves one and he seems to be abandoning another. How does that work? Well, Elisha's rescue, his salvation was physical and it was immediate. It was simple in a kind of way, and that's why it could be done so quickly. But Joseph and the story of Jacob's family, that's far more complex, verse, or chapters 37 to 50. If Joseph had been rescued, if he'd just been plucked out of the cistern and, and gone about his way, then his family would have been lost. There would have been famine and the devastating impact of that in the world. God said to Joseph, so to speak, you need to go on a journey. I could tell you the faults, but really I need to show you. In other words, God is caring as much for Joseph in his silence and in his hiddenness as he was caring for Elisha with the immediate and dramatic. God is caring for both people from the same heart. Do you believe that? Do you know that? God is at work in both situations in the Bible. 
It's a deep mystery that very often God is working most deeply and profoundly when he appears to be most hidden. The hidden purposes of God. So let me believe you, if you uh, ask you a question rather, if, if you're a Christian this morning, do you believe Romans 8, 28? The hard truth, all things together work for the good of those who love God. It's a hard sentence. But if that's true, how can you really know it? The sin is hidden, God's purposes can be hidden, but so is his grace. The hidden patterns of God's grace. There's a man called George Herbert, I don't know him very well, he died long ago. He's a 17th century poet. Picture of him on the screen, looks rather dapper. He wrote uh, an interesting poem about the whole story of Joseph. It's called Joseph's Coat. I encourage you to look it up. It's kind of an old language. It takes some hard work and meditation to see what's going on. But he's talking about the suffering that comes into your life. When suffering comes, when there's trouble, when there's disappointment, it can destroy you spiritually, says George Herbert. Suffering can make your hard heart. Heart? Hard. That's the word. It can make your heart hard. It can turn you bitter. It can make you callous and untrusting. It can kill your joy, says Herbert. But when suffering comes into my life, says George Herbert, I get something else. When God sends suffering, I get something else. This is what he says. I'm suffering, and it can make me into a really bad person, as I paraphrase. But along with it, God has given me a coat, a coat of his love. He's taking a wide-angled lens on the whole of the story of Joseph. Joseph's coat was a token of his father's affection to him, his love for him. Herbert says this, In the midst of my suffering, God gave me a coat of his love. God gave me a token of his grace and his assurance and a certainty with a coat of his love that he loves me to the uttermost. Suffering can ruin you. Suffering can harden you. But suffering with an absolute assurance of God's love, like a cloak around you, can change you, can transform you, can make you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The pattern of salvation in Joseph's life was completely unexpected. It's so against the world's thinking that the younger one should rise up and the elders, elder brothers and parents would bow down before him. It's so unexpected and countercultural. But when we get under the surface of it, we see how it points to the ultimate act of salvation. There was another one, another son, who came to his brothers, and his brothers received him not, says the Bible. There was another one who came, and he was sold for silver, and he was betrayed by those closest to him. There was another one who was stripped naked and abandoned to die, who cried out in the dark, why? And nobody came, and it looked like nobody cared. And his name was not Joseph, his name was Jesus. Jesus Christ fell into a pit, a cistern that was infinitely deeper than the one Joseph fell into. There was a cry of dereliction, have you abandoned me? Joseph cried that to his brothers, and there was silence. Jesus Christ cried that to his father, and there was silence too. On the cross, Jesus was stripped of his clothes and his father's love as he was being punished for my sin, the stuff that's hidden and the stuff that's seen, and your sin too. When suffering comes, friends, 
you will lose any sense of God's love. You will think that he's not there, that he doesn't care, that he's impotent of power. Unless you see, here's the one who lost the father's coat so that you could have it wrapped around you and be assured of his love. Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only religion that claims that God has suffered, that God has gone into the pit of suffering and he's there with you in the midst of your suffering and need and brokenness. He's in the dark beside you. God knows what it's like. He suffered with, suffers with you and he's sure suffered for you. When you're suffering, you don't need an answer, I don't think. You want someone to be with you. You want God's presence. You need God's presence. And the cross proves that he loves you and it proves that he's willing to be with you. We need to finish. Friends, remember it's never too late for redemption. Never too late for a new beginning. Never too late for a phone call or a text. It's never too late to start a relationship with God or to start it afresh. You can do that this morning, no matter what your past has looked like. Remember this wicked family? No one comes out well from Genesis 37. They've grown up, they've done terrible damage to each other. They want to kill each other, literally. And yet it's never too late to start over. Christian friend, God's silence is never his absence. It's never his absence. If you know through the cross that Christ is beside you in the suffering and pain, he suffered with you, he suffered for you, you'll be able to live like George Herbert speaks of. This is the last two lines of Herbert's poem, Joseph's Coat. I live to show his power who once did bring my joys to weep and now my griefs to sing. Even my griefs, says George Herbert, I can sing. Let's pray.